Well, good morning. Good to see you all. If you um, have a Bible, you can open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. The text is also printed on your uh, music sheet for this morning. And uh, Mark, chapter 14. And uh, verse 32 is where we'll be. I think many of you know that um, I love uh, Tolkien. I love The Lord of the Rings. Um, I love the books. I think the, the movies are amazing. I also love The Hobbit. Uh, not so much the movies as much, but the book. And uh, in The Hobbit, if you're not familiar with it, a kingdom of dwarves built an incredible kingdom inside of a mountain. Uh, but they were attacked and run out by a dragon named Smaug. And time has passed. And they want to return to their home and reclaim their treasure and reclaim their home in that mountain. And so they enlist a hobbit, um, basically a small person named Bilbo, to help them. They go through many troubles on their journey, but then they finally arrive there. And they come to a secret passage on the side of the mountain... And now is the moment when Bilbo needs to shine. He needs to enter in through that door and go down a tunnel to descend into the mountain. He's come all the way for this purpose after going through many troubles on this journey. And so he does. And as he moves in the tunnel, he gets closer to the bottom. And he can feel the heat from the dragon. And he can hear the snoring of the dragon. And then something happens at this moment. He stops and he hesitates. He entered the tunnel and then he starts rethinking why he came. He's not there for himself. He was there to help the dwarves. But he's now at the moment of actually following through with his commitment. And here's how Tolkien describes this moment. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. So what happened? Well, he committed to this long ago, but as the moment itself draws near and he's face to face with the reality of what he signed up for, a tremendous thing happened in this moment. He has to decide all over again, is he going to go through with this? And so he hesitates. He has one more moment to turn back and in that tunnel alone, he fought as Tolkien put it, the real battle. And so he settles it and he goes on. We know what those moments in life are like. You commit to do something that's hard and will take courage. You plan to see it through. And then when the moment arrives, we hesitate. We have to redecide. You have one last moment to decide if you're going to do it or not. Remember different times I've jumped off cliffs into rivers. I have all sorts of, it takes all sorts of time for me to work up the courage to decide to do it. And then once I'm at the top, I have to rethink it all again. There's a moment of hesitation. We have come to that singular moment for Jesus. It's one of the most sacred moments in history. This is Thursday night of Jesus' final week. He's come into the world to accomplish his mission for us and for our salvation. Now it's Thursday night of his final week and he's in an olive grove 
called Gethsemane. He's within an hour of being arrested, which will lead to his crucifixion the next day. He can feel, as it were, the heat from that approaching moment. And he stops. And he hesitates. And in this moment, at Gethsemane, we get a window into the heart of Christ. It's one of the most important hours that's ever happened in human history. I remember spending time studying this about seven years ago and remember feeling like I became a Christian all over again after reflecting on this moment in Jesus's life. And I resonate with that with this week as well. And so this hour of Jesus's ministry, it's a real moment in human history, just under 2,000 years ago, just over 6,000 miles from here. And it stops us in all of our modern busyness. And this should lead us to a hushed silence and worship. So let's read this together. Mark 12, or Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we'll walk through this in three parts. We see the distress and the cup and the resolve. And then what I want to do after this is help us see 10 ways that this can change our lives. So first, the distress. This is late Thursday evening over dinner. The Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples that he was being betrayed, which will lead to his death. And now he leads his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden of sorts, but more like a grove of olive trees. He knows his time has come. He knows he's about to be arrested and there's no going back. And so in this final hour, the dominoes are about to fall toward the cross. And so he tells his disciples to sit while he goes and prays. He took with him the three closest disciples of, that he had, Peter, James, and John. I mean, why would he do that? Think about this moment. This terrifying moment that's about to, that's upon him at the cross. And he's going to pray to his father. And he tells his disciples to wait, but he wants his friends, his closest friends near him. And so he takes his closest friends. The God made us for friendship in Jesus, truly human, desires his friends to be with him in the hardest of times. And so Jesus starts walking with these three friends and his soul becomes stirred with a dark storm. 
the language Mark uses to describe Jesus' distress is deep and it's intense. We could pass over it so quickly, but it's intense. The theologian B.B. Warfield once wrote a profound article called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. You can find it online. I encourage you to read it. And when he comes to describe this section of Jesus in Gethsemane, he says Mark almost exhausts the resources of language to convey to us some conception of the Lord's agony. Look at verse 33. Mark says Jesus became deeply distressed. That word is used in the resurrection narrative when the women come and see the empty tomb and they're alarmed, astonished. And here Jesus is in deep alarm. And then Mark says Jesus became troubled. And Jesus himself said, my soul is very sorrowful. We, we know that Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's always quoting and echoing and alluding to the Old Testament scriptures. And he does that right here. He's, um, this, what he says here is from the refrain of Psalm 42 and 43. The refrain of those Psalms goes like this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Jesus is using the same language here of his soul being cast down and plunged into deep sorrow. Psalm 42 and 43 have been deeply meaningful to me at different times in my life, maybe for you as well if you've struggled with depression or discouragement. These are the go-to psalms for the depressed. If, if you've not discovered those for yourself, I encourage you to. Psalm 42 and 43, it expresses intense sorrow in the midst of feeling abandoned. And Jesus is identifying with this psalm. More than identifying it though, he is fulfilling it. He is bringing the grief of that psalm to its fullest expression. And notice what he adds here in verse 34. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. What must he be thinking about in that moment if the thought of it nearly takes his life? And then he tells his three friends to stay where they are. They've come with him this far, but now he has to go alone. He has to be alone with the Father. There is a weight that, no, that cannot be shared in group prayer. He has to deal with his Father alone. This is a weight he alone has to bear. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He collapsed. His soul was so heavy and cast down that it took him to the ground. I know some of you have felt like this before. Perhaps memories in your life of hearing the news of the death of someone that you love deeply. And you can't stand anymore. You collapse right where you are. On the chair, on the bed, on the ground. Weighed down with grief. It takes all of your energy to pour out your heart to God. Do you have room in your theology for this moment for Jesus? The opening of Mark's gospel announced that Yahweh, God himself, is coming. Prepare the way for Yahweh. And who shows up? Jesus does. God in the flesh. The king of all creation. And here he is. In a grove of olive trees. His strength gives way. Collapsed under the weight of these crushing thoughts. Truly God truly human. 
and collapsing in distress. Why? Well, we find out in his prayer, he uses one word to summarize what is causing his distress. The cup. So second, the cup. Mark first summarizes Jesus' prayer in verse 35. Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then Jesus' own words come in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father. Deeply personal. Mark is highlighting that Jesus uses the, used the Aramaic word for father here, Abba. But it isn't just a general word for father. It's a deeply personal and intimate one. Some have overstated this, by the way. Maybe you've heard this, that as if it means daddy. That's not quite right. Um, there's nothing childish about this. It would be more like the way we say dad. An adult, um, adults say this to their own fathers. They call them dad in a familiar and personal way. And so Jesus is speaking to his father in this deeply personal way. And he has one thing on his mind. One request. One plea. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He affirms that the Father is free. He can do and determine all he wants. And so he asks for the cup to be removed. The cup. Jesus has talked about that before. In Mark chapter 10, he, it's one of the ways he, used, he refers to his death. He said he'd have to drink a cup. The image comes from the Old Testament. It was often an image to refer to God's judgment poured out in full strength against the wicked. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So the wicked of the earth have a cup that will be poured out upon them, a cup of foaming wine drunk to the dregs that will make them stagger. It's the cup of God's wrath. All of history is moving toward this day. This is God's just response to sin. He's made us, he's blessed us with every good gift. And we've loved the gifts more than we've loved him. We've used him. We would rather praise our own selves or have other people praise us and exalt us than give God the glory and praise him. We've lived this way at the expense of others, using others in manipulative ways. And a day is coming when God's judgment will be poured out against all sinners like a cup of wine. And here's Jesus, the only one who doesn't deserve that cup to be poured out on him. He doesn't deserve to have even a drop of that wrath touch his lips. And here he is agonizing because he's going to drink it to the dregs. This is why he staggers at the thought of it. Jesus is not staggering at the thought of physical pain or merely physical death. Many noble men and women have embraced their coming death with incredible poise. Jesus comes undone. Why? Because Jesus, the only one worthy of all praise, is about to be flooded under God's judgment. Listen to how the Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod helps us reflect on this moment. This is from his book, Christ Crucified. 
There will be pain indeed. And Jesus shrinks from that. There will be an awful loneliness. And he shrinks from that. There will be the hellish demonic. And he shrinks from that. There will be dying and death and its taste. And he shrinks from that. But there will be more. And it doesn't help that he doesn't know what yet. The curse. What will it mean? The full ransom price. What will it mean? Forsaken by God. What does that mean? The thunder and lightning of unmitigated divine judgment. Condemning sin in his tiny, frail body. What will that mean? Gethsemane is apprehension. An apprehension of the awfulness of what's still unknown. The imagination of Jesus fixes on it. But in its unfolding, it will be even more dreadful than the worst forebodings of his imagination. This is why he hesitates. This is why he collapses. This is why he says he's sorrowful nearly to the point of death. Because that death that's coming, even the thought of that almost creates his death. Almost takes his life. Because this is no ordinary death. This is the cup. And this is his unique cup to drink. Not the wrath of God for one sinner, but for all his people. Not the wrath of God over an eternity, but eternity pressed down into a few hours. This is the cup. And he asks the Father to remove it from him. And so this moment should push out of our minds forever the thought that Jesus was just stoic about all of this. As if it was no hard thing. As if there's, there's been harder tasks that others have done. No, there's never been a harder task that anyone's been called to do. But now third, the resolve. We only get this brief summary of Jesus' prayer, but it was a long prayer, long enough for the disciples to fall asleep. Jesus came and found them sleeping, and then he went away and prayed again. Verse 39 says he prayed the same thing again, and then he came back and found them sleeping again. Then he went to pray a third time. This is an earnest prayer, but then he settles it. The storm of his soul is calmed, and he's resolute again. You see that in verses 41 and 42? He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. This shows us that in the garden, in all of this distress, Jesus was, in a sense, realigning with his purpose. He was re-embracing his mission. He was re-deciding all over again that he would embrace the cross. He would drink the cup. So here are three commitments that Jesus resettled here. First, we see his commitment to the Father. Remember his prayer here? Yet not what I will, but what you will. So he staggers at the thought of what's before him, and yet he says he's going to submit to the Father's will no matter what. He wholeheartedly trusts the Father, and he fully submits to him. Second, we see his commitment to the plan of salvation. Or as theologians put it, the covenant of redemption. There was an agreement between the Father and the Son. They made a covenant together to redeem all those whom they chose to save. 
And the Father and the Son were aligned to this from eternity past along with the Spirit. And the Son of God became a man in order to fulfill this purpose. And purpose. so Jesus is resolute in his commitment to the covenant of redemption through his whole life and ministry. And yet then at this moment, just before the cup, he hesitates. At this moment, he's now faced with the experience, the experienced reality of what he committed to from eternity past. And the reality of it is staggering. And so it's as if he has to redecide all over again that he's committed. Third, we see his commitment to his people. We see his commitment to all those who trust in Christ very personally. Jesus is not just staggering as he stands on the precipice of an abstract idea or transaction. He's about to carry your very sins upon himself on the cross and the purpose is to remove them from you. To bear God's judgment in your place. To drink your cup. He's asking this question in Gethsemane. Do I love them enough to do this? Is Drew worth it? Is Kathy worth it? Is Sam worth it? He's nearly dying at the thought. It's as if he's saying, I'm nearly dead at even the thought of doing it. Is it worth it? Are they worth it? And by the end of the prayer, he has reaffirmed his answer. He's had that answer in his heart from eternity past. But now he resettles and confirms it. And how does he answer? Well, his resolve at the end of the prayer shows us. The soldiers do not come and drag him away from prayer, kicking and screaming. No, he closes that time himself. And he goes and gets his disciples. And he says, it's time. In other words, he settled it. You're worth it. He's committed to the Father. He's committed to the covenant of redemption. And he's committed to all those whom he'll bring to faith. Now, how do we respond to this? Well, at one level, I'm really hesitant to give any kind of outline for how to respond because at one level the only appropriate response is just silenced, hushed worship. To tack on three little application points would be to trivialize this. And yet this is meant to transform us. And so what I want to do is just reflect together on how this should transform us. I'm convinced this will happen even if we don't reflect on this together. If we do just meditate with the Spirit's help on Gethsemane, these are the kinds of things we can expect to have happen. And that by recognizing this, we can accelerate the process perhaps. So here's 10 ways, I'll be brief with each one, 10 ways we can expect this to change us. 10 implications to live in light of this reality. Number one, get to know the real Jesus. We've all, we all have ideas in our minds about who Jesus is. Have you had a place in your theology for this Jesus? Does his commitment to the Father factor into your normal fa- uh, thoughts about him? Does his commitment to this eternal covenant of redemption come to your mind often when you think of him and why he did what he did and why he does what he does? Let this morning be an inspiration to get to know him, perhaps like you haven't before. Do you have room in your thoughts and theology for this distressed Jesus? 
So read the Gospels afresh. Read scripture-saturated theology books about him. Speak to him. Second, trust him for your salvation. Everyone has a cup of wrath to drink. Every single person. And that cup will either be handed to you to drink down forever to its dregs. Or it will have been given to Christ on the cross for you to drink in your place. The turmoil of Jesus in Gethsemane shows us the terror of facing hell. Jesus is collapsing at his glimpse of the terror of the wrath of God. If he collapsed at the thought of it, what must it be like? And the Bible is unambiguous. That day is coming for all humanity. And Jesus has drunk that cup for all those who would trust him. And so he invites us to embrace the doctrine of hell without needing to fear going there. Because he invites us to trust him and let him be our cup bearer. Third, see the cost of our salvation. Let's never trivialize the cross of the gospel. Let's never get bored with it. Let's never think, yeah, 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 I know, Jesus died for sinners. The gospel, I get it. Do you see here that Jesus has never had that perspective? John Calvin said of Gethsemane, it's our wisdom to have a fit sense of how much our salvation cost the Son of God. Gethsemane shows us the cost of our salvation. This is no trivial matter. Number four, feel loved by him. He went through hell to have you with him. He drank the cup of your wrath down so that you could drink the cup of his blessing forever. He wrestled in the garden and settled it again that you are worth it. It was not merely his duty to die for you. It was his desire. His cup was clearly bitter. But what we see in the garden is that his love is stronger. His love couldn't be more personal. Number five, cultivate your love for him. The felt love of God is meant to transform us to love him back. The more we feel loved by him, the more we will feel love for him. So see his love for you and love him back. Number six, learn to obey Jesus. When we see his love for us, we love him back. And Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. So his love for you, seen in Gethsemane, Gethsemane and the cross, is meant for us to see it and then for us to receive it, to love him back, and for that to transform us to become people who gladly obey him in everything. He's given him, he's given us his whole self. And so we now give him our whole selves. Number seven, hate your sin. There are several events in the Bible that show us the serious, just how serious sin is. God destroyed the earth with a flood because of violence covering the earth. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. But no judgment has been poured out on sin like the cup that Jesus drank. So if you, if you want to know just how serious sin is, you look at Gethsemane and you look at Jesus about to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin.
This should lead us to hate our sin. We should hate that which was the reason why Jesus had to drink the cup. And not just sin in general, but your very particular sins. Number eight, let this stir us to fight our sin. How can we be trivial with sin and disobedience in light of this? How can we coddle and cultivate love for something that Christ hated? How can we love that for which Christ had to die for? Thomas Goodwin put it like this. Shall I live upon that which was Christ's death? Shall I please myself with that which was his pain? Sin is no trifle to Jesus. And it should be no trifle to us. Verse, or number nine. Trust him in your suffering. No matter what you go through, Jesus understands. He has entered the depths of this discouragement and downcast and stricken soul. He's, he took the go-to depression psalms on his lips in the darkness of that night. And he endured immense suffering. And yet he was resolved to trust the Father and follow through with his purpose of love. So suffering may break into your life as a storm unexpectedly, perhaps even this week. And you may not understand why God would allow something like this to happen to you. We ask, how can a sovereign God and a good God allow this suffering to take place? And we have to admit mystery here. But here's one thing we do know from this. The God who ordains and allows suffering is the God who came to endure the worst of it for us. And he did endure the worst of it so that whatever suffering we endure in this life will actually just be temporary. He endured the worst of it and drank the cup of wrath so that whatever suffering we experience in this life, it will give way one day to eternal blessing and joy in him. So in the midst of your suffering, you can cling to Christ. You can say with Job, though he slay me, yet I'll hope in him. Finally, share the real Jesus. Many people in our culture, many of your friends, my friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers, so forth, many of them have rejected Jesus. But look at Jesus here in the garden. This garden of agony and love. Look at him fall into the ground, distressed at the thought of the cross. And then look at him get up and rise with love to take hell for us. So my question is, is this the Jesus that your friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members have rejected? I doubt it. People do not know this Jesus. They've rejected a cartoon Jesus, a caricature Jesus. They've not rejected the real Jesus because they've never heard the real Jesus, perhaps. And so what an opportunity we have to not just know this Jesus and be loved by this Jesus and love this Jesus back and obey him and see the cost of our salvation and hate our sin and, fi and fight our sin and have this hope through suffering. What an opportunity we have to bring this Jesus to others that others might receive his love as well. Let's pray. Our Father, how do we respond? I don't think we know. And we thank you.
Thank you for your commitment to us. Thank you for your plan of redemption. Thank you for not bearing your son for us so that you could spare us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Please help us by your spirit to grasp the height and depth of your love and help us live out these responses we've considered. For your name's sake, amen.